Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. But it, it actually helps the passive to be in a deal with another family office. Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Real Estate Lab podcast. In this lab, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the most brilliant minds in real estate investing, then turn their wisdom into practical advice and knowledge that we can use to boost our income. And now, let's turn it over to our host, V. It's a great day to be alive and to invest in real estate. What was it like managing multifamily during the first few months of the pandemic how was the redo how was the multifamily industry transformed during the last decade are you interested in raising capital from institution investors like family offices hey 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 my name is viku and thank you thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the real estate lab podcast we will answer all of those questions during today's episode. My guest today landed in the multifamily industry by accident. He actually bought his first multifamily property sight unseen while living overseas. Some gut moves right there. Now, he was brand new, did not have any experience in the real estate investing world, yet he actually put money down and bought his first multifamily property sight unseen do you see what could corrong there now after he bought the first building murphy's law took over he bought the insurance that was a scam his property had asbestos the occupancy rate was really low, and etc. etc. Luckily, you know, redo. Luckily, he found his business partners at a local real estate education club and saved the day. Their partnership became Triarch Real Estate Partners. Our guest today is Joseph Bramenti. He is a civil engineer who used to work for ExxonMobil. His company, Triart Real Estate Partners, www.triartrep.com, has managed over $2 billion in assets. Billions with a B. And currently has $100 million of assets under management. Now, before I dive into today's episode, I have to warn you be ready. It is one of my most favorite episodes to record so far, but it's also a long episode. Not just long in length. It's This is a long overdue episode to release. Redo. This is a long overdue episode to release because of some technical difficulty that I uh, have with the recording software. But, you know, it's finally here, so get comfy and be ready to learn. Also, I have made mistakes on the website of our guests while recording this episode. It's not 
www.tryrep.com. The correct website is actually www.tryrep.com. In case you wanted to get a hold of Joseph. All right, now let's get it rolling with today's episode. Our guest, Joseph Bramanti. Welcome to another edition to the Real Estate Lab podcast. My name is Viku. I'm your host, and I have a special guest here with me today. His name is Joseph Bramanti from Chart Real Estate Partners. Welcome to the show, Joseph. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's play a little game here with me, Joseph. You and I, let's say we jump into the DeLorean and we go to 50 years into the future. We're at a press conference of the tallest and the most beautiful building in downtown Houston. Who would be at that podium giving that speech? That would be me. <laughs> I Man. see you found my, my uh, LinkedIn uh, age me photo where I did that uh, fake press release for 50 years into the future. And uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely one of my ambitions is to, to build the tallest building here in Houston. And uh, I'll get there. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I love what you post there because this is a concept similar to what I've read in a book by Cameron Harrell called Vivid Visions. Um, have you had uh, read that book by chance? I've actually met Cameron Harold. I got a photo with him and uh I'm reading the book now. I'm also reading his other book, uh, Meetings Suck. So he's a great guy. Highly recommend all of his books. Yeah, definitely. And uh, for the listener, if you are wanting to find more information about Cameron, you can go into uh, his Facebook. He's doing a lot of lives and giving a lot of value um, for, for you if you are a COO or anyone that's interested in um, anything that Cameron uh, has an expertise in. Now, of course, I'm talking to Joseph Bramenti, CEO of Triart Real Estate. You can visit his website at www.triartep.com. Now, let's talk about your first deal a little bit so the listener know your story because I think your, your story is very uh, fascinating. Most people, I'm thinking about 90% of the new investors, felt like they need someone to hold their hands to do a deal. For you, though, uh, you wanted to show up your Exxon manager, so you decided to buy an apartment because they were buying what luxury and uh, resort and condos, and vacation homes and whatnot. And the way you did it was through reading books. You read six books and, and you bought your first deal. What was going through your mind when you decided to pull the trigger for that 26 units? You know, um, not really sure what was going through my mind. You know, it's one of those industries where you don't know what you don't know. And I'd read all these books and I felt like I knew a decent amount and at least enough to uh, purchase a property. And also I was, you know, making really good income. And so I, I felt like, you know, worst case scenario, I just got to flip the bill for the mortgage and until we figure things out. And I thought there's no way this small little 26 unit property could ever hurt me or my business partner uh, that uh, combined, uh, doing this deal. So, you know, I, I really didn't respect it that much to be honest and just bought it, um, and should have given it a lot more respect than I did. And it, it quickly put me in my place as you, as we will discuss further. 
I guess because it was cheap for you, right? You you were high income earners at that point. Yeah, it was relatively affordable. Um, I mean, I don't want to say cheap. It was. Uh, I mean, it was it was the first hundred thousand dollars I had ever saved up at one time, and, and had it all in my account, and I used that to buy that property. Um, so I, I certainly felt it. It wasn't cheap. It was you know I didn't get to enjoy looking at that you know those all those zeros in my account for long because it was quickly deployed, um, and I can tell you the feeling of of that the day that that money went out. It's a feeling I've I've yet to ever have again. Just a a sickening feeling to your stomach, like you've just made some huge mistake for that first one. Because you you know you don't you know it's kind of like a, my own reality check after making that money when I was like you know do you really know what you're doing here? You know I wasn't quite. I started second guessing myself once mm-hmm. I sent that money out. I was all confident until the money left my account, and then I felt like instantly I just became very insecure about the transaction. <laughs> what well, do you remember uh the title of those books that you read? Um I do. Uh I can't think of them all off the top of my head. I know one was uh Dave Lindahl, he's a great author. Uh I think it's called like, Multifamily Millions. There's another one called Mastering Multifamily Analysis. Uh and I read a couple others and um yeah, so that that was it. And and really the just to, to backpedal a little bit, um, so my managers were were buying these really crappy rent houses, uh, like sixty thousand dollars rent houses, and we're getting a couple hundred bucks a month in rent. And you know they're you know, they're making good profit, and they were trying to. I mean, I think the guy, my my manager, who I was actually emulating, he had like fourteen, uh, and I and I was you know I thought that was you know thought he was just some real estate rock star, you know. <laughs> and so I was like, man, that's really awesome. So I actually had the mindset originally, I was going to just buy a bunch of foreclosed houses or, or rental houses, but right. ideally foreclosed because, you know, I, w- I was living in Papua New Guinea at the time and the news reports that we saw, and this is 2010, we're all talking about the foreclosures. It's all you saw in the news is foreclosures. And so I say, well, I need to buy some of these foreclosures. And the original guy that I, I I went to partner with, he already had five uh, rental houses. You know, his family did rental property, and so it was nothing new for them. So we'd originally teamed up, and we you know we came up with a, a spreadsheet for how we would go in and and take down these rental properties. And I said, well, let's you know I don't I don't know where the number came from, but the goal was eighty foreclosed houses over like a two-year or three-year period. And we had this beautiful spreadsheet of how we're going to take down all these houses. And I kept sending that spreadsheet to all these these banks because the time zone difference in Papua New Guinea was 13 hours. So I would finish work at like six or seven. And then I would then start my my second job, so to speak. I put my real estate hat on and I would start calling all these banks. And for them, it was nine, 10 in the morning. So it's perfect. And I'd work, you know, until about midnight, 1 a.m. Uh, and get, you know, four, six hours in in the Houston time to try and contact a bank, get some financing for all these houses. And most of them laughed at me and hung up. They saw a strange area code calling them. But one of them finally told me just buy an 80 unit apartment complex. And that's kind of what 
kicked me off onto the, the apartment track. And then I bought all those books and really dove into it and got the research. And, and the book said, you know, houses are great percentage wise. They'll always make a greater return, but apartments are better for this reasons for, you know, multiple reasons. And the only downsides apartments is that there's a higher barrier to entry. It's harder to get into that market because it requires more capital. But if you can get into it, then, then yeah, that's all good. So I was uh, able to get into the market and uh, was unable to convince my my single family rental friend to join me. And so actually, we we ended up uh, I ended up getting a different partner uh, than the original to do that first transaction. And uh, we spent probably six months looking at multiple apartment complexes, uh, and then we found uh, this 26 unit property and um, it was a pretty straightforward transaction as far as we felt it's um, it was in a great location I had some friends uh, drive it for us because I was we were both overseas living in Papua New Guinea so neither you, of us you both worked for Exxon yeah we, we were both we, we both worked for Exxon and neither of us had saw the property uh, he was a rotator so I think he had drove by it once i'm not certain though because his base was uh was not in houston i think his base uh home was like ohio or oklahoma or one of those places with an o i forget now but uh, now his base is houston but anyway uh i did have a friend in houston that drove the property and said yeah it looks nice but that friend had no multifamily experience they Mm -hmm. they did houses so um, we were really flying blind. We were really flying blind on that first transaction, and the due diligence that we did was just the checklist that the lender gave to us, which wasn't even that detailed. Um, I'm not even sure if the lender we used was a true multifamily lender, um, because I, you know, the the, the bank was uh, Bank of Internet USA, which as sketchy as that sounds, was actually a real bank. Uh, I don't think multifamily was their main business, but they did give us a loan. uh, And we did have a due diligence checklist that we did. um, But it was just very basic. We had, uh, we knew that the roofs needed to get replaced. That was one of the things that we knew because the seller told us the roofs needed to get replaced. So that was an easy one. So we got a bid for the roof replacement. Uh And then for the interiors, the broker told us that oh, I think it needs about 3000 per door renovations. And he helped us with a, a rough bid uh, or a rough estimate to get it done. And we didn't know about financing the rehab. That wasn't in any of the books I read, unfortunately. So we were, we just set money aside and we're paying for it out of cash. And uh, so, uh, so that was, you know, kind of mistake number one, I guess. Um, and then as we're doing the due diligence, you know, we, we do a couple of things, but for the most part, it was a pretty laid back due diligence period. We thought it was super easy. Didn't know what everybody was stressing about because we just <laughs> did it no problem. Right. Right. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, so we got a, a roof bid. We walked it. We, we scoped the sewer lines. And I think actually... I don't even think we scoped the sewer lines. No, actually, we did not scope the sewer lines because uh, that was an after-the-fact thing. We, I don't really recall exactly what we did. Uh, it was really basic. 
and then uh, all the focus was uh, getting the financing once we got closer to uh, the end of due diligence period. So then we just switched gears, went to closing the loan, and uh, yeah, then we closed the loan. So it was a uh, oh sorry, we got a PCA. That's what we got. We got the the property condition assessment. Mm-hmm. And they told us some other things. I think that was kind of what we, we built in some money for that, but it wasn't m- nothing major. Uh, and then we, then we closed on a loan and we were, you know, we're patting ourselves on the back thinking this was super easy. I don't know what everybody's stressing about, you know, just thinking that we're the greatest thing to real estate and uh, we're going to take over the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we start, we go about doing our, our rehab because we're, you know, trying to, do it the Exxon way and we're hiring all these, you know, we're, we're, get, we're bidding out these subcontractors, which, you know, to try and use the tools that we use at Exxon on relatively small multifamily vendors, isn't going to work out very well. It's uh, so, right. but luckily, you know, I've over the years, we've, we've really, you know, dumbed down not to be insulting or anything, but we really kind of diluted, you know, diluted is a better word. We really diluted the Exxon tools that we had. Um, for project management to better fit the industry because it just didn't, uh, you know, we're used to dealing with large, you know, multi-billion dollar, you know, EPC contracts. And then we had to go all the way down to, you know, now I'm dealing with, you know, Joe Smith's uh, subcontractor. Yeah, 10, or, 20 know. grand contract, maybe a couple hundred at, at the most, right? You You were used to dealing with, billion dollar contract like you said at for exxon yeah where we had you know 30 40 page contracts you know you're going to do this we're going to do that everything was detailed out and now it's you know gone down to okay here's a one page document with our scope of work that we're going to get done for you and (laughs) so that was kind of one of the our our learnings was uh our transitions to 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 that to right right so so that first property you bought the site un, site unseen, um, like you describe, and what you just talk about is the physical due diligence side. Did you do any financial due diligence at all? Yeah, we we did underwriting. Um, wasn't very good to be honest. It was pretty pretty bad. Um, it was. I mean, we were doing the basic formulas, and that you know that 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 back of the napkin kind of calculation, which yeah, that that works, and it worked back then. And I think that's that's what people have to realize is you know realist multifamily specifically you know ten years ago, uh, and even probably I would say as recent as five years ago was relatively simple. I mean you could underwrite properties almost by hand, mm-hmm. especially before ten years. You could have underwritten them by hand. There was enough fat in the numbers. You had higher cap rates. It was a much simpler industry. Versus now it's gotten so competitive and so much more complex that you, I mean, you, you can't, you can't use those old models anymore. Basically the, the same, the fundamental calculations are there. They're just a lot more complex. Right. You have to uh, stress test and you have to do all kinds of things, creative ways to make sure what you're paying for this building will cash flow because the, the uh, cap rate is compressed and, and you just have to account for a lot of, things not like you you did back in you know t- 10 years ago in the first deal i think now, for the most part our broker might have probably did the bulk of our 
of our underwriting. We just kind of might have tweaked one or two numbers uh-huh. um, and just rolled with their number. And, and and also we weren't the first deal. We really weren't trying to knock it out of the park. It was really just to get the experience. And I would encourage anybody on their first deal. This that's your tuition. Like you're not trying to knock it out of the park. You're just trying to get in there, get in there and do a deal and kind of, you know, get your feet wet. And I think that, you know, part of the thing I see in the industry is there's a lot of guys who are really just trying to get in on that first deal and knock it out of the park. Um, and that's, that's just not realistic. Um, no, not, but anyway, not, back to our, our, our story was, you know, it's also a different cause back then I, I bought that first property for 25,000 a door. 26 units, 650,000 total purchase price. Um, that same property untouched today, it's probably 75,000 a door. So it tripled in value just because of the cap rate compression. Right. Now, just, just curious though, did you have a chance to show off your manager at all? Um, After you bought that 26 unit, did you say, rub it to them and say, Hey, not really. So, you know, I had a lot of, so within six months of, of buying that property, and keep on this. I bought this at the end of October of 2011. So six months into it, you know, it's we're in 2012, Mayan calendar, end of world kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and my world truly did end that year because within six months of buying it, I ended up losing my job. I was notified that we had fraudulent insurance, so we didn't actually have insurance. Um, and that the property had asbestos and that we were four units down into the renovation. And so I was, I was notified of the asbestos after we were four units deep into a renovation. Um, and so that was, you know, all that, all that news hit me probably within 60 days of each other. And it was, it was a really rough period uh, of my life. And I, I can tell you that, uh, no, I did, I did not have an opportunity <laughs> to <laughs> kind of gloat with the manager because the property that I did not respect from the beginning put me in my place. And, uh, and then all, and, and in life in general, you know, just things, you know, my job at Exxon, while I was performing really well, um, I was an entrepreneur and entrepreneurs have opinions and I was, you know, entrepreneurs don't do very well in cookie cutter organizations. Right. And uh, so I'm very grateful for the time I had there at Exxon, but I was, I was definitely, uh, you know, kind of the black sheep of, of the group. And I, you know, I, I didn't exactly fit in, so mm-hmm. to speak. So that's, I just want uh, to ask you a, a, on a side note, um, the time that you got uh, laid out, was it around uh, the time that, Oil drops down to about $35, $40 in a barrel? No. So this is 2012, and that happened in 2015, 16. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So that was, you know, it was, I was very fortunate that oil was still very high, and I was able to um, get another job in uh, oil and gas. So I, I ended up losing my job in July. And I spent the next six months focusing on real estate. So I had plenty of money saved and I really focused on real estate. Took all kinds of courses, a lot of CSAM courses. I joined a local real estate group to get connections and a network because in this industry, having a good network will 
um, can, can make or break you. Because if you use the wrong contractors, like I was, I was absolutely using the wrong contractors. I used the wrong property manager. I used the wrong everything mm -hmm. uh, when I first started. And I was paying for it. It was super expensive. Because if you're using guys that are used to charging uh, single family prices for multifamily renovations and doing single family renovations on multifamily properties, you're just not going to survive. I mean, it's, there's a big difference in the way you conduct those renovations. And I, I had done that. I hired single family contractors and I hired a single family property manager to manage my small property because typically a 26 unit property is not going to be able to afford an on-site manager. Uh, and right. ours was no different. It was, a uh, you know, 600, I think our rents were $540 at the time. And, you know, we just couldn't afford on-site management. So you had basically somebody off-site that was overseeing the property amongst other properties. Right. And the way that all kind of came to bite us was that this manager um, was just not doing a good job and was uh, on the property. And so in addition to everything else, we had lost some vacancy in addition to us doing renovations. And so it put us in a position where, you know, in July, um, negative cash flowing, have no job, have asbestos, have no insurance. I mean, I was in a, <laughs> I was screwed. You know, I was looking at not only not having my job, but losing the hundred K that I'd made and was so proud of. I was potentially going to have to be, you know, and this was a full recourse loan that we had signed on. So oh, I was wow. going to be looking at selling that property for a loss and getting half of my investment back, you know, taking a 50% loss on it, if not more. Right. And right. then it didn't help that the real estate group that I joined was everybody told me, yeah, you're screwed. Sell the property, take a loss. Everybody from all the mentors to the CEO. And I went kind of, you know, in desperation, hands out, please help me you're screwed to sell a property, take a loss. So I didn't have a lot of people in my corner uh, telling me that I had a chance to save this property. And then uh, I met, so fortunately that is when I met my two partners. They were, uh, they were third party managers or vendors that offered their services uh, to other members of that organization, that real estate group. Mm -hmm. And um we met and showed them the property. We talked about the situation I was in and you know, the one thing I did right, or maybe the, the second or third thing I did right. I'm not sure. I, I didn't, I probably only did two things, two or three things, right. Not many, but one of those was I bought it in a great location, right? It's the same thing that everybody knows about real estate location, location, location. And I did that right. Thank God. Um, and so I was able to basically just throw more money at it and solve my problem. So the median household, uh, or median house value behind me in the neighborhood behind us was almost a million dollars. So we were, you know, basically backed up to this really nice neighborhood in a really nice area across the street was, uh, a movie theater and there's a, a, a super Walmart super center and a Chick-fil-A and like, it's a really nice area. And so our plan, which was a bit crazy, was we were going to completely renovate this entire property and, you know, gut it, come back with all new cabinets, granite counters, all new floors, all new fixtures. Um, we did, we added washer and dryer, 
all new tile and tub in the bathrooms, um, all new appliances. I mean, everything. The only thing that we didn't do, um, we left the electrical because electrical was copper. It was fine. And we only replaced about half of the, um, the, water, the water lines. And particularly, it was just the half that, was, that we used to tie into the, um, the washer and dryer. And the rest mm-hmm. we left. But we did change all the fixtures, which is one of the tips. You know, if you're buying an older property, one of the things you can do to kind of mitigate leaks and low water pressure is you can just change all the fixtures on the on the plumbing because those are typically the items uh the pieces of hardware that'll get clogged up over time not necessarily the pipes themselves but the actual fixtures will get clogged and you can just so if you just replace them you'll see a dramatic increase in your water pressure so i didn't know that at the time so yeah that was just i've learned this over the years but that i did that and that was one of the unintended consequences was hey we got better water pressure uh, we replaced all the boilers or it was just one boiler uh, all new roofs, and um, and we did. We actually we had um, aluminum windows, and windows are very expensive to replace. You're talking, you know, thousand dollars a unit typically to replace windows. Um, so I had the brilliant idea. We just hired. Is it a, a, about two fifty three to three fifty per windows or per home? per window? But typically, a unit's going to have more than one window. Right. So on average, yeah, you're. you're some one property we looked at is like twelve hundred, and this is the most recent price. So it just depends uh, on what. It also depends on if you're using black vinyl. Uh, we're doing a thirty-seven thousand per door renovation right now for with black vinyl windows, and it was, you know, they're a bit more expensive. But mm-hmm. anyway, this property we didn't have the budget to to do that, so we were uh, we just uh, had them clean the windows with the wire brush uh, by hand. And then they just painted them white. So it looked from the street, it looks like white vinyl windows, but they're just aluminum metal that's been painted white. Okay. Uh, but uh, so we, we did everything, all new landscaping on the exterior. Uh, hindsight 2020, I would have probably spent a little more money on the exterior, uh, but it still looks nice. We replaced all the siding, all new hardy, uh, just did it. The curb appeal could have been better. But, uh, but yeah, the, the plan was, we're just going to throw a whole bunch of money at it. Mm-hmm. And, and at that time I knew how to do a proper underwriting. I'd learned this in CCIM. So I ran a model and, and show this to a banker and, and everybody agreed. So we had the manager company, we had the banker, uh, and then we had our balance sheet, which at that time I had just started working again. Um, I'd start working in uh, oil and gas sales. And uh, so I was, and I was working probably 50% of the time for them. And the other 50%, I was still working on this property. It's trying to salvage my nest egg. And uh, so we go to get the loan and part of the requirements uh, are that we've got to put more money down as collateral. So they, they, we'd already invested our deposit plus I think it's like 150,000 from financing the uh, rehab personally with cash. And then we had to put like another 150 to 200,000 into the deal. So like all in, we're in for like 500,000 on this deal. So I did, I cashed out my 401k and I put what money I had left into this deal to secure the loan with my partner and, uh, and we go to work. And so we had that asbestos issue to, to deal with first and foremost. 
So we hire an asbestos contractor and we'd already gotten quotes and the quotes that came back at just some God awful price. So it was like eight to 10,000 per unit, which was, that's a deal breaker. I mean, that is extremely hard for almost any deal to afford. And ours was no different. Right. So we, um, we started talking with the guy and we said, okay, well, do we really need to abate everything? Like every wall needs to come down because also there's, that was just the abatement. Then you got the cost to put the sheetrock back up on everything. And that's, that's not cheap either. Correct. Um, so he said, well, no, not really. I mean, you could, you really only have to replace or you only have to abate the sheetrock that you are going to be exposing or getting into. And so for us, that was the kitchen, that was the bathroom and that was the, uh, the AC room. Oh yeah. I forgot to mention we were, we were adding air conditioning, central AC. This property had window units. We were adding central AC, which was, you know, that, that was a, interesting experience mm-hmm. uh, in now, itself. You, so your solution to fixing your property was to throw money at it, right? To fix it. Uh, yeah. You went against what your mentors and everyone in, in your uh, mentoring group uh, that was telling you. And ultimately, it, I think your decision paid off handsomely for you. If you yeah, I mean, all in total, it ended up from originally being a 3000 per unit renovation mm-hmm. uh, to a 30,000 per unit renovation. We, we, we vacated the whole property. We had the hazmat guys come in, they do their abatement of just the wet areas. Mm-hmm. And then our GC goes in and he does the whole property at once, renovates every single unit. Um, we had to deal with vandalism for a little bit. Um, f- funny story. One of our residents in unit four, specifically had lived there for apparently a very long time and you will experience this when you as you get into multifamily but sometimes you're going to have very long-term tenants that don't want to move they don't care what rehab you're doing they don't want to move and this guy was no different and unfortunately we, we made him leave we said look we're not renewing your lease we will evict you and um, so he left and when he left he took his unit number above his door with him <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny. And to this day, that unit does not have a number. It has, uh, it has the outline because there's so many layers of paint. You can still see the number four from just, you know, the difference in layers of paint. You can tell there's mm-hmm. number four there, but uh-huh. there's no actual plastic number there. Oh, wow. Uh. <laughs> that, was, that was pretty funny. Um, and then we also dealt with, with vandalism because we were adding washer and dryer. And so it kind of helped us. We, we had a small washer and dryer on site or a small laundry room on site. And then somebody stole those. They stole all the copper out of it. Once they, you know, it's a very tough situation when people realize you've got a vacant property, all kinds of bad things tend to start happening. So you've got to really watch it and, and go fast and, and really try not to be vacant for too long if you can. Um, but anyway, so we, we vacate the whole property, lease it back up. And I tell you, that was probably the second most stressful time in my life other than, you know, when, I got notified of all those bad things. Then the second worst was now we're spending all this money. I've got a vacant property. And so really I'm just like, I'm all in. I've, I've doubled down on stupid. And if it, this thing didn't work, then I'm just toast. You know, I've got no right. 401k, no money left from my Exxon experience. I'd basically be starting all over after, you know, five years of corporate experience. You burned your ship. Now, if you, Joseph, if you were to do, say the same thing today, but, but now you are still your same self. So no experience. You just got off Exxon, right? 
would you do the same thing today with that same building and, and tell your mentor, nah, I'm not going to listen to you. I'm going to double down and I'm going to do this for. Heck know, yeah. Cause I'd have done it from the start. I wouldn't have wasted time. I mean, we, I could have probably gotten the whole thing done for 25,000 a door, probably less now that I know, you know, I got better contractors now and we're, um, you know, we're just more efficient and, you know, we, we put, for example, we put a, a TPO roof on it, which, you know, is nice and they're, they're good. I'm not saying anything against them, but really those are more for long-term holds. Uh, this property was never that long of a term of a hold for us. And we could have cut, you know, we could have spent half the money on just a normal, you know, tar roof and we've been fine. Um, and then we also, you know, I dabbled with uh, putting Wi-Fi on the property and I've done that on two properties and it's, it's failed miserably on one on the other. It's kind of mediocre. So I don't recommend people put Wi-Fi on properties anymore. It's, so I would have saved some money there, but yeah, absolutely. I would have, I would have definitely done the whole thing. I would have done it much better. I would have mm-hmm. probably made more money. I would have certainly made more money because I wouldn't have had so much equity. Uh, I wouldn't have spent so much equity doing it. I would have financed it with, um, uh, I would have financed the rehab from the start with the bridge lender mm-hmm. and the whole thing, um, abatement and all. And uh, I would have probably remodeled it better. You know, we're, we're doing a 37,000 per door renovation right now. And we're actually changing the floor plan, knocking down walls, moving the two by fours, creating a new floor plan, opening it up. And that's 37,000 per door. So obviously we've gotten a lot more efficient than we were in the past. Uh, Cause I spent 30,000 per door and I, it was, it looks nice. I did a lot, but with the people we're using now and the skills we have now, we could have done more with less. Definitely. Now, I'm talking to Joseph Pramenti, CEO of Triart Real Estate Partners. Um, make sure to visit his website at www.triartep.com. Let's transition a little bit. The market has been very forgiving in the last few years. Now, your, your deals uh, is a prime example of it, right? You made all kinds of mistakes, but kind of the market just carry your, your property through. However, since, I mean, everything is pretty much at, at a standstill uh, at the moment because of the, the virus, uh, the CARE Act and some of the other policy changes are, are putting a lot of pressure on multifamily operators. What do you think will happen to, syndication who, uh, sorry, to syndicators who have overpaid the deals in the last few years, um, kind of like you did? Um, you know, sorry, just real quick. Uh, it's the website is uh, triarchrep t r i a r c r e p dot com. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no worries. And I'll, I'll make sure to fix that, editor. Please go back to the beginning and change the website. Gotcha. Um, I would say absolutely anybody who started back when I did or even before I did had the luxury of um, higher cap rates. To, to to protect them from mistakes, you know, because as you, as you just heard, I made tons of mistakes. I made, you know, mistakes. If I made those same mistakes today, if I bought that same property today at current prices today, meaning 75,000 a door at probably a 6% cap rate, if not five and a half, 
buying that property, making all those same mistakes, and then exiting that property, or in my case, we refinanced it, still have it today. Uh, we made 207% return on the refi, but exiting or refinancing today at the same cap rate, I, I would have made, I would have maybe gotten my money out, maybe, um, on a sale. Because it's, you know, when we bought it, it was, it was over a 10% cap rate, I think. Or it was almost a 10, if not slightly over a 10 cap rate. And then over the years, it's compressed to where it is today. You know, now it's a class A minus property, which in a class A area, that's, you know, 5% cap rate. So it's a lot of the value that, uh, or yeah, a lot of the return and the, and the value that was generated was in, in truth due to the cap rate. And now we certainly cut our teeth and, and did a lot to increase the NOI. The NOI was, uh, or the rent, for example, was 540 when we started and it was over 1200 when we left uh, or when we finished with the rehab. So we've more than doubled the rent and we certainly you know, did well on the, on the NOI, but you will never outrun a rising or falling cap rate. I mean, the rising or falling cap rate will win every time, no matter what kind of value add uh, you're doing. So I think nowadays, the concern I have with people is, yeah, we've been at all-time property highs since you know 2016 and, and, and forward. You see these people um, sort of kind of chasing yield across the country and going to places, all these kind of remote areas and, and emerging cities, which, you know, that's, that's great. But there's always a lot of risk when you're not buying in your, in your backyard because we see it here all the time in Houston. People buy this crappy stuff that nobody here in Houston wants, but some brokers really sold them on the deal. Uh, and they, they quickly learn why nobody bought it here in Houston. Right. I, you're I local, that, right? You could see the property first, I guess. You can see it first, but you'd be surprised. I mean, I've, I've had brokers try and, you know, tell a story to me and I'm like, dude, I, I live here. Like I, I know what's <laughs> up with that sub market, you know, save your breath. Um, so, you know, these guys can be pretty convincing and that's, that's their job to be convincing. So they're, you know, they're getting paid to sell the property. So they're going to sell it. Uh, they sell the sizzle, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but I think that how, how do I see all this playing out? Do I think there's going to be a correction? Not so much in, I think it's going to be an indirect correction. In, indirect meaning that lenders are now requiring interest reserves, meaning you're going to have uh, as much as 12 months of the debt service built into the loan. So you've, you're basically having to pay for that debt service up front mm -hmm. as an escrow, which is going to decrease the amount that you can pay for the property which is going to cause the cap rate to go up. Now, I'm not sure how long that's going to stay the case. You know, it might go away. There might be uh, insurance companies that come along after the fact that fill that void. There's going to be all kinds of creative stuff, but at least in the near term, that's going to be an issue for anybody looking to sell or exit a deal um, or buy a deal in the next 12 to 24 months. You're going to be dealing with, with those kind of financial issues. Uh, also, I think it's going to be very hard to verify what are the true, what is the true NOI? Because we're in a period now where we've got record high occupancy and record low collections. 
it's just yeah. such a, a strange thing that it's um, it's really going to be difficult for buyers to determine what the value is of a property and what the collections were pre and post COVID. Um, and then also how long will this last? I mean, people were, have been hoping that it was kind of a V shape correction, but now mo most economists are saying it's kind of more like a Nike swoosh. And, uh, and you know, and we've, we've seen the cares act and, and while it has some good things in there, um, or, you know, PPP, EIDL, those things will help. But one of the things that is really going to hurt the industry is around the eviction moratorium. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but basically there's a 120-day eviction moratorium on properties. And then in addition to that, there's a 30-day uh, eviction notice that you have to give after the 120. And then most likely based on experience of when courthouses get busy, it's going to take you probably 30 days as a landlord to even get a court date set to evict somebody. So you're, you're potentially looking at six months of a resident living in your unit for free, depending on when they decide to stop payment. And that's really going to hurt properties. I mean, that's going to hurt owners. And I don't think there's much of anything you can do. Uh, I mean, unless you just had really good reserves on hand, um, and you're, I mean, cause you're going to run out of forbearance, even Fannie and Freddie, they're saying you get up to 90 days of forbearance. So worst case scenario, all of your property decides to skip. If you're in this true workforce housing profile, which as I remind you is what most syndicators today have been chasing is this workforce profile. Well, that profile Best tends to right? have the worst credit. They tend to not care about their credit. So broken leases is part of the business with that profile. It just, every, a lot of people have broken leases and you know, everybody leases to people with broken leases. I mean, in theory, you're not supposed to, but everybody does it. You just charge, you know, typically there's a high risk fee that would get charged to a tenant uh, that has a broken lease, which is pretty easy math for a tenant. He said, look, I can move to a new property at the end of my six months, pay a high risk fee, and I can save six months of rent. I mean, that's that's easy math. So right. I think if you start seeing widespread abuse of, of this eviction moratorium, uh, it could really be nasty for operators. So even, even after the, the collections issues, like right now we're focusing on collections because people physically can't work. But soon, like in the next 30 to 45 days, people will be able to work. Um, hopefully, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> Keeping fingers and, crossed. And then the question will be: Okay, you can work now. Will you pay back those prepayment plans you've made, uh, those payment plans you made with us, or will you continue to not pay because you've heard that we can't evict you and that you got basically an immunity bracelet on for the next, you know, six months? So it's in the six months is as of March 27th. So really by August um, is when you actually see people getting evicted. So I, I know there's a lot of apartment associations that are working with lawmakers to make adjustments. I mean, the PPP and EIDL has been getting adjusted on a daily basis. So I, I, I truly hope that they modify that uh, because otherwise they're going to put, they could potentially put multifamily operators out of business. And 
even the best ones, you know, can go out of business because, you know, that's you, you people have lost their incentive to pay. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they've got no reason to, to pay. And then it's really a matter of, okay, what's the character uh, of the resident you're, you're leasing to. And uh, I, I think that that workforce housing profile has a tendency to take advantage and we'll, we'll see. So if you've been, uh, if you, if you haven't been selective, we've been pretty selective, but even us, we're nervous about, you know, some of our properties and, and one of the, th- one of the things that we're doing right now is we're, we're reviewing the last 12 months of skips and, and, um, and uh, what's it called and, and fees to see what the kind of percentages of our current profile, just to give us an indication of what the, the tendency might be for them to, to take advantage of a system like that. And uh, so we're hopeful that, uh, that everybody pays and, and really kind of, it'll, it'll come down to how good the manager companies are with communicating and, and building community and staying in touch and, and getting people to pay when they can even though they, there's nobody holding their feet to the fire to actually pay. Yeah, communication is key in terms like this uh, because tenants, once they find out they don't have to pay, they, they don't want to pay because yeah. the tendency is I want to hold on to as much cash as I can because I don't know if I'm going to have my jobs you know, next week or a month from now. Um, yeah. But go ahead. Yeah, no, I was saying and it's, you know, tenants talk they they watch the news it's it'll it'll get around and you know it's it's, and i think it's especially going to depend on what kind of state that you're operating in you know if you're in a you know so the what i told you was for texas texas is a very pro landlord state Mm -hmm. Uh, other states are, are very pro tenant and you know so if you're in california oh my gosh i got i don't well, one, you're actually probably in a better situation because you're probably used to situations like this more than other states. You know, so for us, this is a big shock. You know, the idea of a tenant staying in our unit for six months not paying rent is completely alien to us. I think max is typically three months, and that's if they if they really work the system and they do every little thing they can do to stay in the unit. Mm-hmm. Typically, it's in Texas. It's about three months. Um, and in an, an ideal situation is 30 days. Um, but in states like California, it's not unheard of for it to be six months. It's proud. It's from what I understand. Again, I don't own anything in, uh, in uh, California, but from what I've been told, it, six months is not unheard of. So, no, definitely um, not unheard of. And litigation fee could be enormous uh, to get your, your residents out. Uh, because if they play the system, you know, you just have to keep on going to court and getting your lawyers involved. It's it's a mess in in state like California. Um, but just to change the subject a little bit, um, right now, like you said, uh, pre-COVID, post-COVID, I'm I'm not sure um, what will change. But there are some fundamental things that for a passive investor, when you're looking at investing in a deal with someone. Um, What's the most important thing that you think that person needs to know uh, about a deal before getting in it with someone else? I think there's a, a couple of things. You know, there's not really one particular thing. And I'm, I'm actually uh, working on a, on a course right now. I'm creating 
some educational materials for passives where I'll go into this more, but I would say some of the, the specific things that they want to look at is one, it, at the end of the day, it all comes down to the, the syndicator who's running the deal. So first and foremost, you've really got to grill them before you even look at the deal, look at that guy or girl, whoever it is, or that team, and understand their experience and ask questions. Don't, uh, you know, there's a big tendency, and I'm guilty of this as well. <laughs> In the beginning, you, um, you tend to bolster your experience or, and whatnot. And I can tell you that it was easier and it was safer to do that five, 10 years ago versus now, because if you get people now getting into deals, making tons of mistakes with your money as a passive, you will be way off on those returns. Uh, it's not just a little bit off. Like I, I remember being off on returns on a cup on my first two deals, thinking that we would get over 30% IRR and I was wrong, made some miscalculations. It happens. I was learning. Uh, it was my second and third deal. And we still made 20, 25% IRRs because cap rates were compressing. Things were working in our favor. Um, that's not the market anymore. That's not the current environment anymore. Um, make those mistakes now. You're talking maybe low teens, if not single digit IRRs. So really vet the syndicator, get references if you can. The best thing is if you can get somebody who's gone round trip or full cycle or interchangeable terms, it just means that they've both purchased and sold a deal. So they've got hard actual numbers of a deal that they can tell you, yeah, I bought this deal at this price and I sold it at this price and we had this cash flow and this was the final true IRR and return to the investors, not just some made up fan, you know, pro forma number. A pro forma is a pro forma. It's, it's just an estimate. It, it's, you know, it's based on some experience and the more experience you have, the better and more accurate that pro forma is going to be and the more likely you will to hit that number. Uh, and so that's why I'd say focus on that syndicator's experience. Ideally, 10 years, a minimum experience if you can for the lead guy. Um, and, and it's preferable, but no less than, than five years. I mean, anybody less than five years, they really would have to be giving you a sweetheart deal as far as the compensation, which we'll talk about that in a minute. But I would say you really want them to have at least 10 years uh, at, for the person leading it. I know it's, it's a very common practice to do a lot of groups, you know, joint ventures and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would say just you really want to limit the size of those groups because it's it just kind of comes down to management 101. You've got so many cooks in the kitchen that everybody's kind of thinking that the other person's doing the other thing. And so what ends up happening is stuff just doesn't end up get done. Things get dropped. There's a lot of miscommunications because these these are joint ventures that are made on the spot for a specific deal. They're not joint ventures that are made with a bigger goal in mind. You know, like for us, I've, I've got, when I first started my company, it was joint ventures, but they were long-term joint ventures. Um, and we kind of went through iterations. I got, there's one partner that isn't a partner anymore. Uh, and we've brought on a new partner, but 
for us, it was, you know, a very long kind of uh, long-term focused uh, joint venture. Whereas nowadays you've got guys just getting in and out of joint ventures with multiple people, multiple groups across the country to do deals. And so there's not a lot of experience with each other. And mm-hmm. there's a lot, not a lot of systems in place like a company, like a real company would have um, to prevent things from falling through the cracks. So to kind of mitigate that, I would say try and make sure those GP joint ventures are less than three. So you should really just have like a somebody who's doing property management. You should have somebody who's putting the whole deal together. And then sometimes you might have somebody who's raising the equity or you might have somebody who's doing the construction. Um, so those are, those are kind of typical people, players I see as far as a joint venture. And you just want to make sure that, that everybody understands what's going on. Cause sometimes what can happen is you can have the guy who did the underwriting, which is another, another joint venture type I've seen is you have one person who's just really good at underwriting and they just underwrite deals across the country. There's no real attachment to the deal. They just, you know, they had the inputs, they ran the model and they gave the model to the syndicator and said, here you go, here's the, put this in your package, go raise the money and close the deal. And they go off to the next deal. And there's not a lot of communication as far as what the assumptions were that went into that model. And so you, you got a guy who just closed on a deal selling a business model that he didn't have necessarily all the inputs to. So it's, that's kind of the, the cons of having multiple joint ventures. So you want to look for smaller groups or groups that are more established or kind of in-house, you know, like for us, not saying you kind of come with us, but as an example for our company, we have management in-house, we have construction in-house, syndication is in-house. The only thing that we will outsource occasionally is the equity because uh, we're going mostly family office, institutional equity, and so we'll go to multiple institutions and stuff like that. And they'll, they'll bring in the equity. Joseph, let me ask you this. Um, talk about your company and yourself. What's something that you or your teams are doing that's better, that you do better than 90% of the people out there? Um, I would say, one, our underwriting is better than most people's. That's been, we've been told that by lenders who've seen our underwriting on deals. And the other thing, which I don't, I don't want to say the underwriting is more important, but, and I'm not saying that equally important uh, is the operations because it doesn't matter at the end of the day, what I can calculate the operations team. They are your offensive line. You know, I think everybody gets caught up in, you know, having the best quarterback or the best coach. And, you know, that's what all these people are on the business side. But at the end of the day, your operating team is front and center. They're the ones who are keeping you alive and and executing and, and keeping you from getting tackled before you can even make that pass to score that touchdown. So I think really having a good operations team um, makes or breaks a deal. And it's particularly dangerous when you're buying out of state because you're really depending on some other manager company and a manager company, you know, they're in the business to make money as well. And so there's a tendency of manager companies to be, to be yes men or yes women. Um, and just tell syndicators yes to whatever crazy ideas 
that they think they're going to do on a property and not be realistic with them and say, actually, you're, you're not going to be able to increase rent $150. I know you thought you could, and that's what your pro forma is. But they'll tell you, yes, that you can do that just so they get the management contract because they've, they've got no tie. They're getting their 4% fee, and they, they're happy. Uh, they've got no consequence if the deal doesn't perform. They're just a vendor. Uh, and so I think that's one of the advantages you get uh, if you can go with somebody who's got it in-house is that, one, they're, everybody is uh, fighting for the same goal. And then two, there's no, there's no finger pointing at the end of the day. So, you know, you can't, I can't point to my manager company and say, you guys screwed the deal up and they're the reasons why the investors didn't make their return. Well, it's in-house. I mean, we're the same company. So right. Triarch is the reason it didn't perform, not so-and-so manager company. And so, it, you know, the accountability is on us as a company, not so-and-so manager company. So you... Your property management company is a fee-based management company, right? And then you also are buying deals in uh, Houston area. Is that correct? Correct. So our primary focus is owner-managed. and But we do selectively offer fee-managed for clients. It's not our primary source of income. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just something that we do selectively because, you know, we're, we're a growing company. And... We've got that skill set as far as we've just got that breadth of knowledge. You know, we've got over uh, over thirty thousand units of principal uh, management experience between the two partners, uh, which is over just over two billion dollars in assets. So very deep party management experience, and to keep that to ourselves just do our just for our own account was you know there there was an opportunity so for us to go and make money at it so now we've decided you know let's kind of open it up to grow triarch more and offer this but on a selective basis we're not you know it's not our primary business uh where some people will do it as a primary business for us it's we do it selectively and for properties that we choose right so the the properties that you choose to manage for clients, um, what market are they in and what unit size is kind of like your forte? So they're, they're all going to be in this Houston area or Corpus Christi area. We've got mm-hmm. uh, several hundred units out there in Corpus and they're going to be, you know, 150 plus units and they've got, you know, they've got a good track record of, you know, typically it's not their first deal. We're not typically looking for first time buyers, although we, we do, I mean, we, we've started the industry. We do have a lot of, you know, guys that we, we represent that we are the only manager company they've used. And, and again, it's on a case by case basis, but when we do target uh, clients, it's more experienced clients who've got larger properties um, because, you know, our, our, our time is valuable and we, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time on a 26 unit property uh, and for a hundred bucks, you know, our, our minimum management fee is uh, $6,000. So we're looking for a large enough property that can afford, that makes sense. They can afford that management. Fee. Okay. And so being that you are in the, the Houston market and kind of the Corpus Christi market, where in that pocket 
like sub market wise, where do you think is an emerging market uh, within Houston? Um, I would say, ask me to give away my secrets, man. I don't, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you some, I'll tell you all, I'll tell you what. So I would say, you know, it really depends on what you're trying to do. You know, if you're trying to do class A new development, um, I think there's a lot of markets in Houston that, that work well inside the loop, almost anywhere inside the loop. But for traditional, conventional loans, conventional assets, um, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you areas not to go into. How about that? That's okay. the easier solution. Because yeah. there's a lot of good markets, and I don't want to say some are better than others, uh, because that's you know that's for us to know. Uh, but I'll tell you the markets to avoid, and I'm sure some brokers may not agree with this, but uh, Greens Point or North Houston, they've, they've rebranded that, that market, that submarket is so bad that the city has rebranded it and, and stopped calling it Greens Point, which because everybody used to call it Guns Point, and now they refer to it as North Houston. And you've got these out-of-state people coming in, buying deals all the time, chasing that market, and they, they just get screwed because there's not, there's no upward mobility in rents. There's you know, an extremely challenging profile to rent to. And you're dealing with product that's been just beating the crap over all these years, dealing with a very rough profile that, uh, I mean, it, it takes a toll on its property. And so I think, you know, there's, I know people who've bought into that market and they, they, they're having a hard time exiting. And that's, you know, that particular market, I would, I would hate to be in that market right now with COVID because I can imagine their collections are just abysmal. Uh, just my guess. I don't know for a fact. Um, other markets I would say is, you know, there's a, a pocket over in um, kind of like 59 and uh, Sam Houston Tollway where it's, uh, and also kind of south of 59 where you get in that Chimney Rock, South Chimney Rock area, or I think it's called Bel Air. Yeah. Um, where there's just a ton of units and you've got, you know, five, 6,000 units within a one mile radius. And they're all running, you know, move-in specials. And it's just a very transient market, meaning that the profile is, they're, they're very light packers. And they'll go from one move-in special to the next move-in special, uh, and you're, uh, and it's just, it's a very challenging profile. I think some, you can do well, and I think it is going to turn over time. But I think to go into a property, uh, and and also those units tend to sell for the cheapest. I mean, they're like fifty a thousand, fifty a door, and I think you've really got to question yourself: is when something's selling for fifty thousand a door, it's not because the sellers being generous. <laughs> it's because mm-hmm. there's a reason that it's that higher cap rate and, and people are not buying it. If it was valuable, it would be worth, you know, closer to market, which is 70, 75 a door. So I would be cautious in those areas. And then also Pasadena is an area that at one time I liked. Um, and now we're kind of iffy on it. Um, I, it's, it's similar to kind of Bel Air and that it's um, a bit transient, but it's, you know, it's challenging. And there's another section uh, on, um, I think it's called Broadway 
by Hobby Airport, which, yeah, that's basically the, the uh, Greens Point of South Houston. So just avoid that area as well. It's, uh, it's, it's just a row, literally a row of apartment complexes. And the problem, you know, what makes apartment management extremely difficult is when you've got an entire row of apartments like that and a resident he doesn't have to shop around for what the specials are he just drives home to and from work on a daily basis and he sees the movement specials as he drives to work mm-hmm. so his lease is going to come due and he's going to say oh i'm just going to move next door and he's going to get his pickup truck and he's going to pick his stuff up and he's going to drive it next door and move in there and that'll be it so you're you know in today's market to generate returns investors or or syndicators are having to do value add renovations and it's extremely hard to do value add renovations when there's no shortage of supply um or sorry i think i said that wrong it's hard to do value add renovations when the residents can just move next door to a property and and hold the rent you know if you've got a neighbor who's got plenty of units to lease, uh, or if, you, if you've got 5,000 units around you that are all trying to stay full and they're all running specials, it's gonna be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for you to be the one property out of 5,000 units that's going to increase rent $100, do this big rehab, um, because there, there's just too many options. There's too many low price options and the workforce housing profile is, a, is very much a uh, a dollar focused, a, a price focused, um, profile. They don't care if you've got new floors necessarily, as -hmm. long as the other properties floors just aren't too bad. Um, because all their friends, they're all living in the same stuff. Walking distance almost. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just, it's, um, I think that's one of the challenges really back to your, you're talking about things you got to look at. So after you're looking at the syndicator, you got to look at the comps. I think everybody wants to look at the market. They say the market this, the market that. Uh, the market doesn't really mean crap if every comp around you within a one-mile radius is lower than the rent that you're currently at uh, or even trying to get to. So if you want to uh, have the best chance of having a value-add program be successful, then don't be the property with the highest rents. You want to be the property with the lowest rents that you can renovate and get them to the average. But a lot of people, a lot of syndicators that I see, uh, and that, that, I've, that I've seen their packages for, they spend like half the package talking about just high level market economics, average income, median household, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, okay, great. What is the property next door renting for? I don't <laughs> exactly. care about all that stuff. What is the neighbor getting in rent? Like that's the comp. That, I don't care that in that area they're getting all this. You know, there's there's pockets in Houston that have a very high median household income, but a very low average monthly rent. So you, you're asking like, why is this possible? Um, and that's, I mean, yes, that's a transient location. It, it will gentrify over time to that higher income, but how much patience do you have? What is your whole period? So you're not going to go in and just do it overnight. It's something that's going to happen, especially when there's a lot of units in a market. That's a you know big ship with a small rotor, so to speak. It's going to take some time for that to happen. 
Yeah, definitely. Hey, thank you so much for your insight. Um, that was like a lot of gold nuggets that you just dropped for the audience and for myself. I really appreciate your insight and uh, really love for your times on the show today with, with us. Um, before I let you go, I just have one last question for you, Joseph. Sure. Um, what's the hardest thing about being an owner operator that people don't realize? Hmm. Let me think about that for a second. I would say it, it depends on what kind of owner operator you are. And I can share this because I'm currently transitioning right from a traditional syndicator who got my start by raising $10,000 checks to now we're going to family offices for multi-million dollar checks. And I can tell you one of the challenging things has been dealing with the, the mindset of your investor from a syndicator profile versus the family office profile, you know, cause you're, I mean, you're dealing with, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful at all. So please understand that, but you're, you're dealing with, you know, W2 guys that that 10,000, 20, 50, hundred thousand dollars that they invested with you is a lot of money for them. And they don't necessarily understand the industry. They're not business people. Typically um, they've got, you know, they probably saw a podcast like yours and a couple others, and everybody's telling them, buy real estate, invest in real estate, be a passive investor. And so they're, they're just, you know, jumping on the bandwagon. They're investing in deals, you know, not necessarily vetting syndicators that well and getting into these deals. And even if it's a great syndicator, you know, if it's the best syndicator in the world and this passive isn't necessarily that familiar with how the industry works, um, or why you might have missed a target or why things, you know, I, I had a passive once tell me, he's like, well, you gave me this, this pro forma and I expected it to be exactly dollar for dollar for that. And I'm like, oh, wow, <laughs> whoa, this was just an estimate. And, you know, when you take over, it's, you know, you, when you take over, you really find out what, what, what is what. And there are tricks that all sellers play with buyers to, uh, conceal the realities of their property and everybody does it. So I'm not saying there's no like fraud thing. It's not enough to really move the needle. It's just kind of like slaps in the face, really. It's just annoying things that people do that you can catch, um, that, uh, you discover quickly after you've taken over and you, and, and they've kind of lifted their skirt and you realize what they, what's really going on. You're like, Oh crap, you got me. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, oh, um, not to digress, but on this one particular property, this guy had a lot of concessions that he was not baking, that he did not report. And they were just paper concessions. And so that really screwed us up. And we go to take over because you, when you take over, you give notice to all the residents, there's a new owner and you tell them, this is your current balance, yada, yada. Well, we gave them that. And they're like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? I've got all of these concessions built in that we didn't even know about because this guy was keeping a paper copy. And was it fraud a little bit? I mean, but mm -hmm. is it worth us going after him? No, we would probably spend more on legal fees than, than acting, just taking it and moving on. Um, so those things like that happen. 
uh, well, that that happened on this deal, and that investor was up in arms because we missed one distribution. And I'm like, calm down, calm down, guy. So, and, and so case in point, though, so that was a guy who didn't understand the industry, and and, and you get that right. You're raising money, and and you're raising money from anywhere you can when you're getting started. Um, and so part of the issue is you're constantly fielding calls and emails with people that don't necessarily know the industry or even worse, they think they know the industry and they really don't. Um, or they're on a property that's getting so-and-so return. I've had this happen. Guy was getting so-and-so return on a deal um, and felt that uh, that deal was doing better than another deal we had. And I spent probably four hours doing a, I reverse calculated the previous property's returns and actually showed that actually, my friend, you are, they did a 10-year CMBS loan and a property that the rent stayed flat for the whole five years that they had the property, whereas ours went up by $150 and we had returned 80% to date and they had returned 40 uh, and they were just going to do 100% refi and it was, it was a bad deal. He was, he was uh, kind of low teens IRR and we were 20s mid twenties IRR. So, but it just goes to show you people can get very confused because syndicators are telling them all this stuff, right? You've got combination of, of passives being in other deals with other syndicators who are telling them a bunch of BS. And then you just got passives who just don't know and are, and are learning in their own regard, but you're, you're kind of the educator as well. You're not just a, you're not just a person who's syndicating a deal. You've got to take time to explain in detail, okay, this is why you do these things. Um, and so that, uh, that's part of the, part of my challenge is takes up my time um, when I do that. And, and we've gotten to a point now where we're not doing it as much. And I've gotten really good at doing videos. And so when we get a question, we will um, respond to it as a video to everybody. And then also we will, um, we've got really good reporting We've automated a lot of reporting, which the better you can keep these guys up to date, um, the more comfortable they will feel. So I think that's part of the challenge is the, you know, it's, it's hard to raise the money and close the deal, but it's equally hard to keep everybody happy, especially when you've got, you know, these deals these days have, you know, 40, 50, 60 investors on them. Um, that's just a lot of of people to to keep up to date and respond to on a on a regular basis uh, and to respond to questions for which is why we're transitioning to family office which family office as i'm learning and it's in its regard has its own challenges there's a lot of trust um, there's a lot more risk that you can end up at the closing table and have an equity partner just back out with who's bringing 90% of the equity and you're just left to dry, you know, you're just, you're just, you're just left there, you're kind of screwed. So those are the risks that you run, but from, an, you're not having to educate them. They know what's going on. They, if sometimes, if not always, they're more advanced uh, than you and they're, they're helping you uh, say, Hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Yada, yada. So those are, those, those are the kind of things you see as a, as you transition to the institutional side, it's more of a, you know, a team thing. We're all working together. They've done this, you know, hundreds of times. They know the industry well. You're not going to BS them. Um, and they are part of the team to, to help. 
but they also call the shots. So if you misperform, they have all the voting rights. They'll just vote you out, kick you out, bring in a new GP, new manager company, you're done. Um, so that's, you know, you don't necessarily have that threat on the syndication side of getting, you know, the majority of, a, of 60 investors to all agree that you've, you know, misperformed or something crazy. So it's, um, for me, it's managing that. Uh, and then also going back and forth in my head as far as recognizing, okay, I'm talking to, I got to put my syndication hat back on. Or, okay, no, now I can put my institution hat back on for whoever I'm talking to. So those are some of the challenges that regardless of which hat you're in as a, which position you're in or which cycle of the game you're at uh, with multifamily that you will be facing. That is uh, one of the harder things to do and one of the more time consuming. It's, it's communication, right? It's all about communication. Mm -hmm. So are you more comfortable uh, dealing with the institution side because of your background with uh, Exxon? I would say so. Um, and then again, I don't mean to be offensive at all. I mean, I, I love my investors who they're the reason that we're even able to talk to these institutions. So I have the utmost respect for them. Um, but they're not the most sophisticated when it comes to understanding multifamily. And so you're having to field a lot of questions that I don't necessarily have to field with the institutional guys. And so I, um, you know, I present differently and I have to present in greater detail um to them versus the institutional so I, I would say uh absolutely we i tend to because of my background of exxon being the you know i was personally i, I reported to uh our senior pm for the, our project i was the project controls they had over a billion dollars uh and and uh costs that i was managing and did a lot of you know i've done vice president presentation. So I'm used to that very corporate, very polished style of presenting and, and speaking. And um, I think that that uh, is the direction I see us heading and uh, away from, I mean, we're, we're still going to have uh, our syndications that we've done in the past. We're going to stay loyal to those guys and we're going to continue to take care of those investors for as long as they want to continue to reinvest but we're not going to be, um, as far as I imagine now, actively raising a lot of money from, you know, passive investors, just because we're, we're planning on getting 90% of our equity from family offices. So we'll, we'll always have a need, but we think that um, it's not going to be as great as the other syndicators who are getting 100% of their funds from these passives and, um, and, you know, if I were a passive, I would, I would want to be in a deal where you've got, and I'm not trying to, you know, tutor on horn here, but it, it actually helps the passive to be in a deal with another family office, because you know that, that um, while you may not be the, the best at multifamily, and, and you might, but more than likely, that institutional investor is going to be more advanced at multifamily than you are as a passive, most likely. Mm -hmm. And so you can bet that they're grilling the crap out of that syndicator for this deal. And there's, uh, I mean, it's a family office has much greater access to the data than a traditional passive would have. I mean, they're, 
getting the Excel model. Typically, they're and they're stress testing it themselves. They're getting the financials. They're putting it through their own model, uh, and they are forcing you to modify your structure to fit them. So, as a passive, if you have the opportunity to be invested with the family office and to be a you know, to be the other 10% of the, of the hundred percent raised. And so the family office is bringing 90% and you're part of that 10%. I'd say you're in a pretty good, uh, I mean, in those cases, you could literally just sign on the dotted line and relax and not really have to worry about it so much uh, because you would know that the one, the family office is, is scrutinizing it, but uh, also in some regards though, sorry, sorry, let me back up there. Uh, in some regards, the danger of doing that, just to be perfectly honest, is that the family office can have preferential treatment over you. And so you would want to make sure that if you're investing in a deal and there's a family office investing, that they are the bulk of the investment, 90%. Because otherwise, if they are say 50% of the deal, they've got a high pref return, say 10% pref, then basically they're guaranteed almost to get their pref because I don't care how bad of a syndicator you are. If they own 50% of the deal, but they're getting 100% of the cash flow, mm-hmm. most likely at a minimum, they're going to be getting their, their 10% pref on a deal. But then you as the passive after that family office has taken all, maybe they take 70% of the cash flow. Now the syndicator is splitting 30% of the cash flow amongst 50% of the remaining investors. Um, so it's, you make even less returns. So those are, that's kind of the pitfall of being a passive in a deal where you've got a family office that's not a majority owner um, because they're structuring it so that they get uh, they almost guaranteed to make money. That's great stuff, man. Thank you so much for your time today. You, you know, I thought this, the last question was like worth the price of admission. And again, there's no cost to listen to this podcast, but that was gold, you know, just to learn from, you know, cause you've been on both sides. You, you have been a syndicator dealing with uh, mom and pop investors, what I call uh, them. And then now you, shifting gear going over to the institutional side. This is truly one of the best episodes recorded so far. So thank you so much for, for that. Yeah, absolutely. Th- thank you. It's, uh, you. You've asked great questions. So thank you for being a, a great host. That's the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes for the Real Estate Lab podcast. Until next time, have a prolific week.